Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 73. Have you ever wondered how you can avoid paying taxes when you sell your business? Well, if you're like most entrepreneurs, the answer is yes. And that's why today we have on the show Brian Forcier from Titanium Partners, who joins us to share his decades of real estate investing experience and knowledge and how a 1031 exchange works and how it can be used if you own your building during the exit process of selling your company to defer taxes and purchase a like-kind property property that generates enough passive income to make selling your business possible and potentially hitting all the numbers or numbers that you didn't think were possible. Brian does a great job explaining the 1031 exchange and hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll feel more comfortable thinking about it and how it could potentially fit into your exit plan or financial plan to figure out how to live the life that you want to, even if you don't have a company. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my episode with Brian. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you, Ryan? Doing good. Uh, you and I are both stuck in Minnesota where it is snowing and we're both locked up. And I think this is a good time to have a nice uh, conversation that we're about to have. And I'm excited to have you on the show because you've got a lot of um, specialty background that I want to kind of pick apart because the 1031 exchange is something that a lot of business owners have heard about, maybe not um, had as much information that they wish they would have. Um, but before we really dive into that, can you go back and, you know, you and I were talking about a little bit prior to you getting on, but give the listeners a little bit of a, a story and your background and how you got into this market. You bet. Well, thanks for having me this morning, Ryan. I'm excited to talk about this topic. I think that, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the 1031 exchange and the process. And so I welcome the opportunity to, uh, to answer any questions and, you know, provide a little clarity on really what's one of the best wealth building tools still available to us. So uh, thanks again for uh, for the invite and excited to talk about this. My background, I uh, as I was telling you earlier today, I went to school to be a professional. I was actually going to go to school to be a doctor and, you know, went on to get a biology degree and go through the motions of, of being a doctor. And I decided that I'd be a much better real estate guy than a doctor. So much to my parents' amaze, I went back to school. <laughs> and uh, I've been in the commercial real estate industry for about 20 years now. And like I said, went back to school and got a finance degree to kind of better support what I was interested in doing. How did doing. you go so, from Petri dishes to real estate? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, we, um, it's it's all a detailed process, right? <laughs> and sometimes there's good things on that dish and sometimes there's not. <laughs> so, you know, our jobs as real estate guys are to find the the, the good dishes to deal with. So I'll, I'll circle back that way. <laughs> yeah. So was there something that, you know, did you buy a uh, piece of commercial real estate yourself to get into it? Or, you know, what was, the, what was it that intrigued you about the whole real estate market? That's a great question. So I had kind of worked my way through college um, doing property management in office buildings. And uh, so, you know, I really learned the business from the ground up, uh, knowing, you know, properties from, from, you know, really the base level to all the way through the investment process. So, and it's helped me in many um, instances where we'll be evaluating a, a replacement property for a client and, you know, we'll, we'll understand kind of the nuts and bolts of the deal because we've got that background. But really what attracted me to it was, you know, it was kind of out of necessity. I needed to start investing in property. When I left school uh, to be a doctor, of course, like most kids, I had a lot of student loan debt and needed to figure out a way to uh, to get rid of that. And so I started investing in single family homes. This was back in the oh, mid 90s to late 90s. And it was a good time to be doing that because uh, asset prices were relatively low for what you were getting. And then we had a nice run up in 0405 and I exited the single family home market in 2004 and, uh, and, uh, it was, you know, a good run for us. Took, took care of all that student loan debt and, uh, kind of launched my investment career, if you will. Well, that, uh, that's interesting because I think how you progressed 
and grown in the real estate market is probably a good segue into the 1031 because of kind of the nature of the vehicle. But, you know, let's start from the ground with the 1031 and maybe give, you know, a background of what it is, where it came from and kind of the, the, the main, you know, overview before we kind of get into this, some of the applications of it. You bet. And I, I think right before I get into that, I'll just, just to finish the background piece from, mm-hmm. from the uh, early 2000s to, to today, I really went into the investment segment then and helping others. You know, I had done a pretty good job myself, um, but wanted to do more commercial assets. And commercial assets are defined as, you know, industrial properties or big multifamily properties, apartment buildings, uh, hotel properties or hospitality, um, retail buildings and office buildings. So those are kind of the food groups, Mm -hmm. if you will, of commercial. And I really enjoyed that process because that's kind of how I'd grown up in the industry and and came back full circle as an investor. So from about the mid 2000s till current today, what we've been working on is helping other investors, you know, get into property and putting investment partnerships together where we'll participate with our own equity as well. I mean, alongside of that, there's typically a, a transaction that's happening. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a sell side or somebody says, you know what, I've had this building for 25 years. I, you know, it served my business well, but I'm selling my business or, you know, that type of thing. And, and um, I want to go to Florida and have you send me a check. So what we decided to do is create a company where we could do that. We can help people with the disposition of the real estate, you know, put it into a 1031 exchange and then, you know, manage the asset for them afterwards so they can truly be hands-off investors, passive investors. And the way that process works, Ryan, is you know, first you got to identify the use, you know, what's, what's the property being used for now? And this is where people get a little confused. You know, let's say you've got a guy that had a manufacturing business and worked hard all of his life, family business, you know, maybe it was even Mm multi-generational, but it's not being handed down to the next generation. So they're doing an outright sale because it's a good time to do that. But they've got all this real estate that helps support their manufacturing business. Well, the IRS allows you to do a like property, you know, like kind exchange, which like kind of exchange isn't just mean, you know, industrial property in this example for industrial property. It can mean industrial property for a multifamily property or industrial property for a hotel property. So, you know, the, the property use is a little less important than people think because it, it really, you know, a like kind exchange is, you know, business property for business use. Well, I was going to say well, basically that was the, actually going to be on one of my main questions because, you know, I think that's where you know, where does the border go around it? Is it mainly just the asset class of real estate or is it, or, or business functionality? Boy, like, cause I think there's a lot of different ambiguity of, you know, where does that start and stop? Yeah. And you know, with all of this, it's always smart, you know, I'll put the little disclaimer out there. It's always smart <laughs> to, uh, to consult your tax attorney and your CPA and, mm-hmm. you know, it, and I'm part of the team. Typically I always require that my investors are working with a, a team and I help them on the real estate side of it, but we also have, you know, always an attorney and a tax accountant involved to make sure that we do it properly. Um, so I'll throw that out there, but, mm-hmm. but really, you know, <laughs> It, it does border around um, real estate assets. Even residential can be thrown in there, although most of my clients are at a stage where they're not, you know, residential is usually the first step kind of in an investment process. So um, most of our clients are at a stage where they're wanting an apartment building or a hotel or something that mm-hmm. will produce enough income in retirement that, you know, they, uh, they can enjoy their retirement. But, you know, the, the real holding period is is a little gray in 1031 exchange. The IRS has basically said, as long as you hold the property generally for one year and a day, you can sell it in exchange. So we do have, you know, and it needs to be defined as held for investment purposes. So let's say again, that example of the business owner that had the property, he probably had it set up in a separate LLC that his business was paying. So it wasn't for investment purposes. Typically that's how we see it done. And so you're just exchanging for another building that's, you know, held for investment purposes. Interesting. Well, I, I, I think we can kind of t- tie that back into kind of some of the applications too, because there's so many stories about how to actually go through it. So going back to, you know, the, the transaction that's happening and you've identified the use of it. So what exactly is the functioning and how, how does it play into that whole transaction once you've determined the use? 
Yeah. So one of the members of the team is called a qualified intermediary, um, a QI. And there's many people that can serve as a qualified intermediary. I am not a qualified intermediary. I, I more serve as the, you know, the acquisition guy and the asset manager guy afterwards. But one of your team members would be a QI. And that's basically an IRS mandate that, you know, you use an independent QI to the transaction uh, and they prepare the legal documents for the exchange. And so very reasonably done. Um, we use a firm, you know, that's been in business a long time, does, does hundreds of these transactions every year. And the first thing we like to do with our clients is get them set up with the, with the qualified intermediary. And what that means is when you sell your property as part of your transaction, your funds actually get parked with that qualified intermediary. You can't accept the funds at closing or else the IRS will say, hey, you realized a gain and we're going to tax you on that. So you have to park those funds with a qualified intermediary. When you do that, you have you know, it's a short timeline. So you have to be ready and your team's got to be ready to do this. So people always say, you know, how soon should I look at doing, you know, planning for a 1031 exchange? And I say, you know, like today, you know, because this process, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it can get really fast. And if you don't have the right team members and the right uh, timeline in place, you're going to pay taxes. I mean, that's the worst case scenario is you're going to pay those taxes you probably otherwise would have. So why not give yourself a shot is what I say to our investors. So then what it does, when you close on your property transaction and you've got your team in place, the IRS says, okay, you have 45 days from the date you close from the sale of your properties to identify in writing with your qualified intermediary. And there's a couple different rules. There's one um, rule called the three property rule. And that rule you can, it's probably the most popular. I'd say 95% of our exchanges are done with the three property rule. And what that means is, again, back to that example of the industrial property. If he sells his, or he or she sells their property, let's just pick a number. Let's say they sell it for a million dollars. The IRS says, okay, you need to replace at least a million dollars in property value with this exchange. Now you can put that into up to three different properties. So you don't have to, you can kind of diversify. It's a great chance to do that. And about 95% of our exchanges are done that way. There's another rule called the 200% rule where it doesn't matter how many properties you do, but the value has to equal at least 200% or more of that in this example, million dollars. So I was going to say that would be kind of difficult to, I mean, that's a lot of work trying to find that amount of property, right? That's 200% of the value and especially diversifying. That's just, is that why that would be the lower of the, you know, 95% are doing the three property versus doing the 200? Yeah, great question. You know, and and that's really market driven. I haven't seen a 200% transaction in probably about since the recession, you know, and we had had asset prices that were much lower. It kind of made sense for people to go out and diversify and buy a bunch of property. Mm-hmm. We're not in that world right now. Asset prices are fairly high, um, and you can still find value out there. But you know, in a forty-five day window, you want to be pretty focused on property type and and um, still trying to get a good deal. You're, you're not. I mean, you want to get a good deal, even though you're avoiding taxes. Um, you still don't want to just go overpay for something. <laughs> and that's a great point. And you know, I'm working with a client right now on a large transaction, and this is this is you know one of the most important steps of their lives and we were talking the other day and i said look if we can't find the right property during the id period i'm going to be the first one to tell you don't do this let's let's you know pay the tax uh, that's the worst case scenario um we tried to identify and couldn't you know we just didn't find the right fit for this particular client because it comes back to a risk reward discussion and you know just like when people invest in stocks or bonds real estate's the same way what's your risk tolerance for the reward that you're going to get and sometimes we can't find that right combination for people and and i'll be the first one to tell people don't do this because you know it's it's uh it's better to pay the tax and start over than um get yourself into a, a losing situation especially in real estate when it's illiquid and you i mean you're, it's not as <laughs> fluid where you can you know quickly diversify again exactly yeah. So we are on that 45 day period. You know, you've ID'd three properties. Um, you're, you're, you're feeling good about this, right? You've got that, that million dollar gain that you're going to protect. And you're, by the way, protecting it from both federal and state income tax, which is a beautiful thing when you're in a higher tax state. So, you know, you're going to take that full million dollars and put it to work versus let's say, you know, you decide to pay the tax and you're, you know, in some states pay as much as 40, 50% of your, of your game. Yep. Um, it's, it's why wouldn't you use this great wealth building tool? That's, um, 
you know, it's, it's got a good process. So then, you know, after you've ID'd those properties, you have 180 days or basically six months to close on the exchange. And what that means is, you know, let's say you sell on, uh, you know, December 31st by, you know, the end of May, you are going to have closed on your replacement properties. So the process is pretty quick. That might not sound quick to people who haven't invested in commercial real estate before, but that is pretty quick. You know, you have due diligence to perform. Um, you have the three properties you're going to ID and you're going to try to pick which one you really like and go after it. And so from day 45 to day, I'll call it 120, I'm working my with my clients to get property under purchase agreement, get it, you know, due diligence completed. There's environmental tests and, you know, lease reviews and a lot of things that go into that due diligence where we help our clients and we, we shepherd them through that process as if it was our own asset that we were buying. Uh, and I think people like that because I, I try to look at, at it as if I was doing it and what would I do? Well, let's, let's, let's dive into that process a little bit because I'm super curious on, you know, first of all, trying to identify three pieces of property that fast. I mean, do you suggest doing this way in advance before you hit that so you can hit the ground running when you're actually in your time period? Or are you, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a kind of a, probably a, a balancing act because you don't want to be watching this stuff and spending all this time as if it, if they're going off market before your time. So like, how do you balance the due diligence trying to find the properties? Well, you know, once you've decided that you're going to do this 1031 exchange and you feel comfortable with your team, um, you know, then the next thing to do is talk about selling your property. So really, I mean, you've decided to do this before you've even sold your property typically. Now, not all the time. That's just what I prefer because then I get to help the client time this so they're not under pressure. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I had a call the other day from a guy and he's, <laughs> he sold his property November 15th. And this is a big transaction. It's down in, it's in Connecticut, actually. And he said, you know, he's got a large gain. Uh, markets have been good to him. And uh, he has to ID by December 31st. <laughs> well, okay, thanks. <laughs> you know, thanks for the opportunity because it's a huge, it, it's over $20 million transaction. The point I'm making is that it, it's never too soon. We should get involved before you even sell your property if possible. Possible. But it's okay if it's afterwards. You know, I can still be of help. Um, we probably just are going to not have as much time to to find the great investment. And it's, you know, again, it's it's about the replacement property. It, it, I go to back to that with all my investors. You know, you need to choose a property to replace this with that allows you to celebrate the transaction at the end and, you know, enjoy the upgraded investment property. And and so the sooner you can get somebody like me involved in the process, the better. Well, and I, and like to, to, yeah, I completely agree too, especially, I mean, with that gentleman trying to get it done by the, the 31st, I mean, it's ridiculous. And like, that's a lot of taxes. And, you know, I mm -hmm. want to talk a, a little bit more about the team and like the whole overall cash flow and investment kind of picture, because, you know, there's so, you know, I, I always say that when you're doing this, it's like almost like like in a Rubik's cube when you're dealing with the taxes and cash flow and your investments, because, you know, a lot of business owners have, you know, call it half their wealth, you know, wrapped up into this business that's been paying for their lease that they might've been, you know, you know, beefing up the the lease payments to themselves or whatever it might be, uh, the, the things that are possible. So now they've got to take this, you know, call it a million dollars and put it somewhere else. So when you're looking, you know, when you're looking at your clients, how do you analyze like, you know, where to put the, you know, like the, if it's three different properties, what types of properties, how to diversify, and then how you are looking at where the in or the investment goes and then the income that comes out of it? Are you helping them dive into the numbers like that too? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, again, what makes us, um, you know, working with a boutique firm like my firm, Titanium Partners, I think very powerful is that we can, we can analyze every single stage and element of the commercial real estate investment process versus, you know, just going to say a, uh, maybe a broker or a, you know, an agent or something like that. We, we really are real estate investors with you. So, you know, it comes back to the kind of the passive real estate investing game. And most of our clients that are doing these exchanges, you know, they don't want the headaches of tenants and we call it tenants, toilets and trash, the three T's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and I understand that they've worked really hard to get to a point where they don't need to do that anymore. So we do have a management company set up to take care of that as well. In most cases, we don't do the day-to-day -day management. We hire local property managers in the community that 
we're investing in, mm-hmm. but we provide the asset management services, which means we look after the profit loss statement every month. We talk through issues with the property manager and the maintenance functions so that, you know, at the end of the day, our investors can be as active or passive as they want to be. But with the passive real estate investment tax laws, there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits to being a passive real estate investor when you're retired. Can you explain some of those? Yeah. You know, I think there's, there's really three ways to invest in real estate, right? Um, There's, there's private equity real estate, like what I, specialize in where you are the are the funder um, there's a what's called a real estate investment trust which a lot of people are familiar through their you know or REITs and they're mm-hmm. familiar through their 401ks or IRAs with REITs uh, which is really just a stock you know it's it's not any different than buying a stock and then you know there's buying the single building down the street that you drive by every day and you buy it because you like it and you know it's part of your community and you know there's that type of investing as well so those are the three ways to go into real estate investing. And, um, you know, none of, they all have their pros and cons, but I would say that the, the positive to private equity real estate versus the other ones, you know, with the single building example, you're going to do the management and you're going to do the daily, you know, tenants, toilets, and trash. Mm-hmm. And so most of our investors don't like doing that because it, it just, you know, they wanted to retire. <laughs> yeah. And it, or, and or where it sucks. Yeah. It's, it's well, I mean, a lot of these business. people go from like running a company with employees and headaches and HR, and that's just switching one problem for the other. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. And, and in a, in a marketplace that you might not understand. And so some people avoid 1031 exchanges because they don't realize there's options to stay passive, mm. which is really a shame. Um, so that's, what, you know, I, I think that's one of the, positives of private equity investing like what we offer versus say a single building where you're trying to do it yourself and then REITs again back to that discussion again I I have some great friends that run real estate investment trusts they're very talented people they're they're great at what they do but one difference between private equity and the REITs uh, I'd say is the way that the distributions are handled on the REIT structure I mean it's it's straight up income that you really can't offset with depreciation or you know paper losses if you will or is in private equity, you get a K-1 at the end of the year. It might even show a paper loss, even though you cash flowed positive. Uh, that's really our goal so that you can offset your income with depreciation. And with that new stepped up basis in the 1031, uh, most of our investors really enjoy that. So let's, let's you know, for the, the people that might not be as tax savvy that are listening up, let's, let's dive in that a little bit because I think depreciation is a big key part of the before and why 1031 mm-hmm. might make sense and what you're talking about as well and how mm-hmm. some of the straight line math works because you're keeping the wealth that you built and not getting hammered, you know, when you're doing this transaction. So maybe let's go before the actual exchange where someone has bought a piece of property and there's all this depreciation that they would be getting taken to the cleaners with. Can you explain that? And then also exactly, we can kind of tie into the afterwards as well. You bet. Yeah. So that, you know, what's called basis. And that's, if I pay a dollar for a property, my basis is a dollar in that property. And, you know, if you've owned the property for, you know, 28 years in residential or 38 years in commercial, you've depreciated that full dollar out. And so what the IRS does is says, okay, Mr. Property Owner, when you sell that building 30 years from now, and you've depreciated the thing all the way out, you're going to pay tax on that dollar on that full gain of that dollar. Whereas if you exchange that dollar into a property that say costs $2, you don't realize any of that gain, that that recapture of that depreciation doesn't have to happen. It gets deferred. That's why it's called a 1031 tax deferment. And the beauty of that is it gets deferred until death. And then upon death, uh, your heirs actually get a stepped up basis. And so they get they get a stepped up basis back to that full dollar. So you don't, I mean, again, I, you need to consult your tax professionals here because every situation is a little different with the way trusts are set up and whatnot. But most of our clients, once they start the 1031 process, they don't, you know, it, it defers until, until death. So again, beautiful wealth building tool. You can keep exchanging up. It's kind of like playing Monopoly where you trade four houses for the hotel. 
Um, but the beauty is you don't have to give two your houses back to the IRS when you go to you know, <laughs> right. well, get I, the hotel. When I think, like you know, knowing the fact that you and I are, are neither of us are CPAs, so we can just talk, you know, hypothetically with some of these scenarios. But you know, there, mm-hmm. some some of the numbers, Brian, that a lot of us talk about, whether it's with our clients or you know people that have been on the show. So we all the whole goal is to have passive income. So if you run the numbers, so let's say it's two hundred fifty grand a year that you just want passively. Well, in the business, it's not passive because you're managing employees, you got risk and all that stuff. Well, what ends up happening is they go, the business owner goes to sell their business. They take all the taxes with the operating entity. And then you got the building, which may or may not be included. And that depreciation that you're referring to, you know, what what happens is that'll actually sabotage the deal to make it where the numbers don't work because they're not going to walk away with enough money because they have to pay ordinary income on this tax write-off that they've been having over the last 30 years. So the income that they've been, you know, the income that they see right now is going to be significantly less because of the taxes that they're getting paid. So what you're, and I I don't know if I'm just kind of just going down a a rabbit hole here, but if, if you take, so it's kind of that whole $5 million mark. If you could have $5 million liquid, you know, clipping away at 7%, you'll be able to passively take 200, 250. So, Mm -hmm. but that might not, you might not always be able to get that liquid. So then how do we use different techniques like the trust and the advanced estate planning and the 1031s to be able to still produce that 250 grand? So let's say the the building's worth like, you know, a million bucks or something like that. You know, when you start looking at the different properties, how much, you know, do you have some examples you can give on, you know, if you were to take that million dollars and instead of taking the tax, you roll it into income producing properties and how they could get closer to that 250 because of what the mechanism is that you're using? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I want to circle back to, to something you said about the 250 because it, it was a good point is that so let's say you put, um, you know, five million to work. If I'm doing my job right, I should be able to produce five hundred thousand dollars a year, a 10 percent or 10 cap rate, we call mm-hmm. it, you know, and sometimes, again, if the investor isn't as attracted to risk. Maybe we're going to go down to a seven cap, but the the point is somewhere between three hundred fifty to five hundred thousand of passive income every year for the rest of your retirement years. If you invested five million with us, that's typically what you can expect. Now, the beauty of that is because of your depreciation on the five million dollar property, and let's say you brought a million dollars in, you know, and you leveraged the other four, well. The beauty is you, you know, you're getting a 35% cash on cash return in that example because you're using leverage. And then the the other benefit of this whole equation is you get the new stepped up basis of the $5 million property, less the million you brought in. So your new depreciation amount, our basis is $4 million, okay? Um, the five minus the mm-hmm. one that you brought in. So that $4 million, again, depending on what asset you choose to go into, you can depreciate over a 28 or 38 year time horizon. And with hotels, there's even another thing called accelerated depreciation for, you know, personal property, fixtures, equipment, things like that. So, you know, using all of those depreciation techniques, typically most of my investors are wiping out that 350 to $500,000, you know, cash flow with depreciation. Not in every case, because everybody's financial situation is a little different, but I do have investors that are doing that. So they're getting 350 to 500 a year in cash flow for retirement, and they're not getting taxed on it because the because of their depreciation loss. Well, and this is where I think the beauty comes into having the, you know, this whole team approach, which is what we adhere to, you adhere to, and because you can't do all this alone with, so think about, and you and I were telling some stories about my personal experience with this, but you oh, know, yeah. when the whole goal is to get to that 250, and let's say you're walking away, you know, through the operating entity that you sell, you could, you know, whatever you know, assets, stocks, all these different things as far as the business. But then you, you know, if you've got this building that you're going to literally, if you just do the normal situation, you're walking away with what, 500 instead of a million, roughly, (laughs) depending depending on whatever it is, you throw that 500 into the stock market, and then you could barely pull, you know, 20 grand out of that versus being able to potentially leverage a million dollars into 5 million and then being able to pull 350 out of that. That's a significant difference of whether you can or cannot sell your business. Yeah. And again, what's what's a little frustrating to me is when I hear clients that maybe we didn't get the chance to work with because they, you know, they did their transaction um, without, you know, kind of knowing about this process or knowing who could help them with the process. And we hear those stories all the time. Even myself, I went through that back in the mid 2000s when I sold those residential homes to get into commercial. 
uh, I didn't know about 1031 exchanges. So I paid the tax. Well, and then what's your experience um, when you're doing, so when you put in the big holistic plan to place where, you know, you might throw some of it into the market, you might buy another business, buy some buildings, because the whole goal is to get to that passive income. And then you're, as you're building your net worth, you're going to constantly be having this basis that you may or may not have to pay taxes to, but, you know, and again, neither of us potentially, you know, act, having the tax, you know, law degree um, right. as the LLM, if you, if the listeners are listening to you, there's specific people that'll know this stuff, but you've got the advanced um, estate planning where there's different trusts that you can throw these into to be producing income for your family for life. So what, I mean, I'm assuming with the, what is it, close to 800 million that you've closed or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How have you experienced, and you get any cool stories where you've seen people you know, wrap in the estate planning as well? You know, I do. I, there's, there's one client I'm thinking about when you're talking about the estate planning and, and, um, he actually did not, he was this hardworking guy. I think he's about 78 years old right now. And he's been my client for around eight years. He was 70 when he sold his business and, um, he had nothing in place. He didn't, he didn't have um, a, a trust attorney. He didn't have, you know, he had his, his accountant, but he was kind of frugal, you know, the, yeah. the business owner that watched every dime while he was, while he was making his, his hard work pay off. And so we did get uh, a trust attorney involved with him right away because again, that's a different level of help that I can offer, but I realized the importance of it. And, you know, he's now set up his heirs for life and, and that process um, can't be understated. You know, some people will go into a transaction a little bit leery of the fees involved with, you know, trust attorneys and whatnot, but, you know, this is things you're going to pass down to your your heirs and, and your spouses and all that kind of thing. And all that reason for your hard work uh, could evaporate if you don't use the right trust attorney. So, Well, and, and making sure that it all goes into, because there's a gazillion different types of trusts and which one's right, depending on all the cash flow and the tax planning and stuff. There was a gentleman on the show called, his name's Todd Ganos, and he specializes in, in this Ning Trust, which is a Nevada trust. And there's so many different ways to avoid, uh, to potentially sidestep that gate that capital gains that you are that mm-hmm. the 1031 so with a combo of all these things you could potentially build a family generational income producing <laughs> machine oh, without, sure. without having to without having to you know actually sacrifice it what are you know where does it not work because you know we've talked about all these really great things and stuff like that where do people you know aside from the the bad not, you know, cash and cash numbers that you want to avoid from a bad asset, but like, where does it not work where you would look at someone and say, you're trying to make this work just to avoid taxes and you shouldn't? Well, the first one is the replacement property. If you can't find an appropriate replacement property, uh, it, it won't and shouldn't work. So that's the first answer. Um, the second answer I'd say is, you know, some of these properties that are being sold um, are sold in partnerships. And the IRS says that you know the same entity needs to um, relinquish the that relinquishes the property has to be the same entity that buys the replacement property, and so you know let's say you and I bought a, a small commercial building together 15 years ago and now we want to you know exchange it up, but you want to go a different direction with your money. Um, you're moving to Tahiti. I'm moving to Europe and you know mm-hmm. we're we're just you know we're gonna um, end the partnership and move on. That doesn't work for a 1031 exchange because the same entity and ownership has to go into the replacement property. And so that can derail people sometimes. There are ways to um, to mitigate some of that. Um, you know, I do have clients that will buy property together and then buy each other out afterwards. But again, you know, it's a, it's a situation where we want to have an attorney involved to make sure it's papered, right? Um, so no, that's a really good, it's a really good point, actually. And I think it's a really good thing to highlight because a lot of um, business owners have got their entities set up, whether they're, you know, so we had our imaging Alliance group LLC, and then it was Minnehaha with the address, which is the building with its own LLC, which had um, two partners in it. And Mm -hmm. so I can understand, I mean, that was perfectly highlighted based on what you just said and like that partnership, but what, you know, the, so an asset sale versus a stock sale with a business, you know, and the asset sale, all the entity entities and stuff stay behind. But let's say the stock sale, you know, how did, have you seen that? Because the stock sale, a lot of the entities and the ownership transition to the potential buyer. You know, how have you seen people unwind their building from their business prior if they're doing enough planning in advance to make sure that they can 
not get into this complicated situation. Yeah, no, it's an absolute key. So, you know, you have to, again, hold the property for a year and a day per IRS guidelines. So mm-hmm. you should start that process at least a year and a day in advance. Um, and then if you're going to sell it into a into a partnership, uh, from a partnership into a single entity, or, you know, in that case where you're going to Tahiti, I'm going to Europe, um, <laughs> let's, let's sell it to a different entity, you know, a year and a day ahead of that transaction happening. So that can be a, a pretty simple way of, of, um, Mm-hmm. you know, dealing with, with that situation. And there's other ways too. There's things called reverse exchanges. The reverse exchange, I've done a few of those. They are a little bit more complicated and expensive to do, but that might be where you find a property that you want to go into. Um, and so you ID it or identify it before you even sell your, your relinquished property. And you can do that. That's called a, a reverse exchange. Um, same rules apply. You have 45 days to identify it, 180 days to close um, uh, within that you know purchased property. But you can actually purchase a property before you sell your, your relinquished. Interesting. So it, when you're... When you're potentially selling and unwinding that with the partnership and everything like that, you know, is there tax situations you need to prep for in order to make sure that, you know, you're not having to, because it's all about cash flow. So you're not having to like, you know, suffocate yourself prior. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there things that you can do because you don't want to trigger something that you shouldn't, right? Right. Yeah. There's a couple of things that have to be done. One in the, in the purchase agreement, it has to say this is a 1031 exchange. So, and there's, you know, a specific legal language from the IRS code that gets used and put in the purchase agreement. Now, the beauty of using, again, maybe let's call me a ghost buyer, right? For my clients is that the last thing you want to do is tell somebody you're buying a piece of property from that you're in a 1031 exchange situation because they're going to obviously you're, you're put at a negotiating um, loss right there. Right. They know that you, you have a certain amount of time or you're going to pay tax. And, um, and so, they get overcharge you because they know what you're saving. <laughs> exactly. And, and do most of the time you're going to overpay if you, if you let somebody know you're in a 1031 exchange. So that's where using a boutique firm like mine and as a ghost buyer can, can really benefit the, the negotiating position. Once, once we have it acquired though, and under um, purchase agreement, you know, and the terms are, are basically agreed to, then make sure it's papered up right with, with the clauses that it is a 1031 exchange um, in the legal documents. The, the accounting process gets a little interesting. In let's let's say that the timing is it's December of 2017, and we've just sold our property, right? And we're going to replace that property, but we've got six months to do it, so we're not going to replace it until end of May of 2018. Well, most people want to get their taxes, you know, filed or have to by April 15th or, you know, March 15th, depending on their situation. You can't file your tax return, your final tax return until your replacement property is finalized and Mm -hmm. and completed. So we do watch that for clients and usually, um, you know, a good CPA is going to catch that too. We have had instances where um, not not in my side of things, but with um, clients that get us involved late in the process where they've, you know, filed their tax return before they've closed on the replacement property. And, you know, it's the IRS gets it. This is a complicated transaction. And usually what they do is they, they allow you to amend your return as long as you pay their taxes and penalties and fees. <laughs> so <laughs> as long as you pay wanna, them, right? <laughs> yeah. Then they're fine with you amending your tax return. It's kind of interesting how that works. But but in reality, you know, they want you to follow the rules too. And, you know, sometimes there's there's folks that will go ahead, file that return and the replacement property is not completed. So that if anything can go wrong with the accounting side, it's usually that mm-hmm. that I see. The rest of it's really straightforward. I mean, it's, you know, um, the unfortunate part is a lot of accountants, um, especially in smaller markets where we're seeing a lot of these businesses trade hands now, you know, in the tertiary and, and small markets, mm-hmm. you, you might not have dealt with this before as an accountant. You know, you might have been in business for 35 years and, and maybe you've heard about tax exchanges at the continuing ed seminars you went to, but you've actually not ever seen it. And it's scary for you to recommend this to your clients. And that's unfortunate because the the process is really straightforward from the accounting standpoint. Well, and it, I'm going to reiterate a point you just made, Brian, is so that, you know, I think that the professionals that are involved in any kind of business transaction or any transaction like this, they should be the ones that are doing it all the time because 
you can't have your CPA that knows how to depreciate a rental furnace, you know, seven ways a Sunday, but has never done this before because it's so it's, it's, it's a specialty. And, you know, you wouldn't want to go to the hip doctor that's done one before you want to go to the one that does 40 a day and whether whether it's the estate planning, the tax attorney, the 1031, all that stuff, it, it just, it's too important and it's too big of a financial decision to, to leave it up to chance that someone's gonna it's it's a lot of risk for them to put their foot out there if they've never experienced it before oh for sure and you know it's it, i do this in life too like you said you made the example of the doctor that you know does the hip and let's say you need your knee done you know we can't be experts in all things even though we were pretty good at our businesses so i just i really recommend that people you know seek out the right help and find somebody that you feel is trustworthy um, this is a big transaction for you and your family and you know you want somebody that you connect with um you know i, I always tell people in in our firm that we're going to speak midwestern <laughs> you know, no offense to my to my coast uh, friends and clients, but you know, pick somebody that you're comfortable working with is what I mean by that. And yeah, um, and avoid the passive aggressive part of the Midwestern, though, right? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah. Get someone that doesn't have an ego, but that's willing to at least speak their mind in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah, like like the guy that called me and said, "I have till December 31st to protect a 20 million dollar gain." <laughs> yeah, I, I, I went passive aggressive on him. I did. <laughs> <laughs> we can maybe do that. No, you're an idiot, dude. Come on. Like you should have been planning ahead. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the opportunity. But <laughs> Well, um, so Brian, let's, as we're wrapping up here, let's tell that story about uh, that client of yours that with the Hawaii, because it's just too good of a story that shows what's possible with this. Yeah. And this is, this is why, um, why I do what I do for a living right here. Cause it's just so fun to, to celebrate after the replacement property has been secured and our clients, you know, uh, we have some testimonials that and I know you're going to share my contact info afterwards and I'm happy to share some testimonials. And whether your listeners use me or not, I hope that they use the 1031 exchange because of this story. So I had a, um, a couple approach me and, you know, they worked hard. They had a screen printing business actually, but luckily their, their business was located in a, in a building that, you know, over there, holding period of 25 years, everything around them grew up and it was in an urban environment. And so they're building, I think their original basis was like two or $300,000 in this property. (laughs) Um, you know, so very low and it it pretty much had all been depreciated out. And, um, you know, they had a developer approach them because they needed the property for an accumulation. And, uh, you know, they were offered 1.8 million for the property. Well, you know, they went in through with their accountant and said, if we sell this for 1.8, what are we going to pay tax on? Well, we're going to pay tax on the 1.8. All right. Is it worth us selling? You know, because right off the bat, we're mm-hmm. left with 900,000 basically. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what do we do with that? So they got a hold of me through a referral and we started the process early, even before they sold, um, looking at properties. And we probably looked at, you know, 30 off market properties for them to, to go into um, before they picked the one that they wanted to. And at the end of the day, we found them a multi-tenant uh, retail office building, completely hands-off. Um, they're in their mid-50s now and were able to uh, to move to Hawaii, which was their goal. That $1.8 million transaction, uh, you know, and, and maybe their business had produced hundred to 200,000 a year at their peak. You know, I mean, this wasn't a big business deal. This was a, this is your, uh, this is your relative down the street, you know, that you right, right. wish good for all the time, but that doesn't always happen to them. Right. So this couple, they sent me a picture, um, last month and, uh, all I saw was their feet in the ocean in the background. <laughs> and they said, you know, thanks, Brian, we couldn't have done it without you. And, and that was so powerful to me. It was like, yeah, that, that's what it's all about. They worked hard. Now they've got their feet up there in their fifties and can enjoy their dream place. And, you know, in that example, they, they put the whole $1.8 million to work. Um, they didn't have any debt. So we were able to uh, buy them a $3 million property. And it was, um, you know, we, we found something that was around an eight and a half cap. So their, their income before taxes, uh, is right around $150,000 a year. Well, that's great for these guys. I mean, that's what they were working hard on before to produce and had to work eight hours a day, both of them. Well, and so. let's, let, let's go into that because in order to get a buck 50 a year, you need about what, $4 million in investments in the market. 
So like they would have only had 900 had this, they not done this. So they would have been able to pull maybe what, 35 grand out of that. So yeah. going from 35 grand to 150, that's, I'd say that's pretty much life-changing. Well, the big difference there, Ryan, is, is leverage. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you're looking at the benefits and I wrote an article on this, I'm happy to share with you on, on the benefits of yeah. real estate versus stocks and bonds. Um, sorry, financial advisors out there, but I think I kick your butt every time. <laughs> and and the reason I do is a little unfair. It's because banks are willing to let me leverage my cash. Mm-hmm. And um, sure, you could do a margin or account or something like that with stocks, which is extremely risky. But in in my case, um, you know, we're going to take on acceptable levels of debt, you know, 75% loan to value or lower. And you're going to put your money to work plus somebody else's so that you can leverage and get that buck 50 instead of 35,000. And that's, you know, where else can you do that? Well, it's a big deal. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if in your uh, investment scenarios that you're running is, you know, because I think the biggest question that anybody would have is, okay, well, what happens if the real estate market takes a shit and I can no longer, you know, I'm I'm now got all that debt. I've got all this risk into one piece of property or maybe three, you know, you know I'm assuming you run the scenarios that says, okay, what if, if what if we go to 50% vacancy? Because it's mm-hmm. less irrelevant on that. If that 3 million goes down to two, it's more about the cash flow, right? It is. Yeah. That, and that's when people ask me what I do for a living, that's my response is I find cash flow. <laughs> so, you know, everything goes back to the underlying asset, back to that risk reward discussion that we first have the first day I meet with somebody. And, you know, what's their risk tolerance? If something goes wrong and let's say it goes 100 percent vacant, can my client afford to carry that asset cost until I can put a new tenant in there and retenant it or mm-hmm. the markets recover or something like that? Um, and typically the answer is yes. I do have some clients that are not risk adverse that will go with 100 percent you know, uh, vacancy scenario and say, I'm still going to do it because, you know, I've got enough cash flow that I can, I can ride the market out if I need to, but that, that can happen. And we did see that happen a lot in 2008, nine. And one of the reasons that that happened with, with debt is we, we had some financial institutions that were calling notes due because you're, you know, there's something called a debt service uh, coverage ratio, uh, DCR. And your DCRs a lot of times have to be 1.2 or above, which means that your cash flow equals at least, you know, 1.2 times the the debt. Mm-hmm. So we watch those parameters pretty heavily now, whereas pre-recession, um, people were doing things with negative debt coverage ratios. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're pretty careful with our clients and with the banking. Again, the other team member that we didn't identify is your banker. Uh, we get them involved right away too. And they love 1031 exchanges. They they absolutely love the process because they know that they're going to get, you know, increased loan values. Because the, the banker is going to make a $4 million loan. You don't think he's going to be happy about that? <laughs> and and 10 years from now, he knows we're going to do it again and he's going to get a, you know, a $10 million loan. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, um, it's a great process for bankers that love it. Um, but they're very cognizant of loan to value ratios and uh, debt service coverage. So I'd say those are the two things that we we really watch uh, with our investors and their, and their team member, the banker. Well, I think it's, you know, it's important as we're, lo- you know, looking at the main thing is cash flow. And, I, and, you know, a lot of owners have a struggle to look to how do they unwind from their business, whether it's the operating entity in the building or whatever that's outside and saying, how can I produce cash flow that is equivalent or less risky than my business. And, you know, I think seeing a way out is the most important part that it, you don't have to just, you know, sell to, you know, hire a broker and sell everything and then just be SOL. But there's, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to significantly, you know, see a clearing to get yourself out of the business without taking a, you know, a huge hit. Oh, for sure. No, and and this is, you know, you hit on the on the Nevada Trust uh, discussion. You know, the 1031 exchange is one of the things out there. Uh, the Nevada Trust is another um, good tool to use. There's also, you know, the Delaware Statutory Trust that a lot of our clients use. And so, I mean, there's a lot of tools in the toolbox that we have access to. It's just, you know, you kind of have to be comfortable using them and you have to be comfortable that you have the right team helping you through the process. And have the right blueprint because you use all the tools for specific things within the grander plan. <laughs> that's right. And that's probably where, again, where your trust attorney comes in and you're, you know, um, I think a lot of the services that your firm provides to are excellent. So, you know, it's, it's all part of this team and, and that's what makes it kind of exciting. I mean, when you get the right 
folks on your team and using the right tools. Um, that's how you get that picture of Hawaii with the, <laughs> the corona toes. Right. And, yeah. Like and the, when it's cold out right now, that's that the opposite of where we are at. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. All right. Brian, what's the best place for our listeners to get in touch with you? You know, I'm pretty accessible. Um, uh, they can call me anytime. Uh, you know, I, I love what I do. And so I'm always willing to take calls from people that are interested in this process and, you know, help them identify if it's something good for them or not. Um, so calling me is the best way. And you can reach me at uh, 218-590-8205. Again, 218-590-8205. That's my mobile phone. And uh, feel free to shoot a text out or call or anything. I Like I said, I love this subject matter and uh, I love working with, with people with questions. And if so. you're trying to close at 1031 within two weeks before the end of the year, he's all open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's there's absolutely nothing going on at the end of the year. <laughs> but, you know, in, in seriousness, I'm willing to talk to those folks, too. So <laughs> let them call. I don't know if I can be helpful, but probably on the next transaction. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, or by email, Ryan, too. And it's uh, B4CIER, F-O-R-C-I-E-R, at Titanium Partners, plural, uh, LLC.com. Uh, we also have a great website. You can check us out there. My, my bio sheets out there. Um, some of our previous work is out there so you can check us and out. And I'll attach all that stuff to the show notes too, for the listeners. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. And it's, uh, it's titanium partners, LLC.com. So, uh, love to hear from folks that are interested in the process. And that's, uh, it's, uh, it's like I said, one of the, one of the greatest wealth building tools that we have left. I love it, Brian. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Brian. I want to leave you with my three takeaways and why they might be important to you if you're thinking about your growth and nexus strategy and where the 1031 could potentially fit into that. And the first one is really understanding your income requirements before you sell and then after you sell. So can you figure out exactly what it is that you're pulling out of the business between salaries, distributions, and perks? And where are you going to generate that income if you were to sell? Most often or not, entrepreneurs and owners have a gap between if they were to sell everything today and take the taxes and liquidate everything and put it in the market and what they could actually produce with income. So making sure that we can find ways to mitigate the taxes and create the income that you need to get you out from underneath the business will actually make it viable. So really having a straight line math and knowledge of your income requirements and where you're going to get that income is huge. The second takeaway is take the time to find the right like-kinded property that you believe in, whether it's the three like Brian was talking about or if it's in one specific piece of property, really spend the time to figure out what you want, where do you find the joy or where do you feel comfortable in a specific asset, whether it's a hotel or a restaurant or retail or housing or whatever it might be that you're comfortable with. So that way you can eliminate the anxiety and the stress that you had when you had that business. So knowing that you can be a passive investor where you don't have to do the toilets, tenants or trash is huge. And the third main takeaway is having the right team is crucial because as you can see, this 1031 exchange is an amazing vehicle when you're looking at the entire exit and transition plan, but it has to be used in a specific context and making sure that it fits in the grander plan because you don't want to use this in the wrong time and or you don't want to have other people that are not bringing it up. So having the right team that can work together and look at this holistic picture will ultimately work to your benefit. So that's my little plug for our firm where we do the growth and exit planning. So if you want more information on how to actually wrap together a team like that, check out our website. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Go on iTunes, rate me. It's greatly appreciated. And until next week, I hope you have a good one.